the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. In our lives, we understand that suffering and pain are inevitable. It can be anything from the discomfort of a bug bite to the agonizing pain of a car crash. We get it. We accept it. Things happen. We have nerves in our bodies that indicate physical pain. There's emotional pain as well. But there's a kind of suffering and pain that in our lives seems a bit more difficult. And that is suffering for the Lord. Because on the one hand, we know to expect it. Since they hated and killed our Lord, how can we expect anything less, at least to some degree of the same? On the other hand, there is a temptation among Christians to keep quiet. Keep quiet about our faith, so that we won't face that persecution, that suffering. But then we do so to the detriment of our primary objective in life, which is to glorify God. The reality is, pain is a part of life. But if we can avoid any of it, we want to do that. It is natural to want to avoid pain. Why would I go there if I know I'm going to get hurt? Why would I do this if I know that it's going to hurt me and affect me physically? To minimize pain and suffering is normal. But we also know that living our lives for Christ will incur some to some degree. So what do we do? You can go with your instincts and avoid suffering for Christ altogether, the result being a lukewarm Christianity. But to live boldly for Christ, then you invite persecution. Neither end result is very appealing. But there is a third option. Option C. That is to obey God by living boldly for Christ, thus glorifying Him, and inviting persecution, but facing that persecution, facing that suffering with the right perspective so that you understand that the pain is actually beneficial and honors the Lord. In other words, option C is for Christians to suffer, but to suffer well. What does that even mean, to suffer well? Suffer with a happy face? Hmm, maybe, not really. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And in verses 13 through 17, we'll see exactly what it means as a believer to suffer well. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 17 is our passage for the morning. And understand that we are talking about not just any pain and suffering, but the Christian suffering particularly for righteousness for the sake of Christ. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 
For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. This morning and next Sunday, we will be unpacking these verses and we'll look at six truths to embrace. Six points. Six truths to embrace to help you suffer well. We'll look at the first three this morning. And the first one we find in verse 13, which is the attitude of avoidance. The attitude of avoidance. Let me read for you again verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Peter is asking a rhetorical question. And by doing so, as we often do when we ask rhetorical questions, is he starting or stating a general principle? And that general principle is pursue good deeds and generally people will have less of an inclination to hurt you. If you're not causing waves in society, if you're just doing good and you're not causing trouble, people don't want to hurt you. You don't stand out as someone that people want to attack and to silence and be quiet. And that's easy for us because as Christians, naturally, we pursue that which is good. And what we see as good is often strange and even contradictory to the world's self-entitlement and selfishness. However, what's most strange to onlookers when they view Christians is not the good that we do, but the fact that we actually want to do it. In other words, everyone generally knows what is good. Sure, that may vary a little bit by from culture to culture, but even the unbeliever knows that it's good to be kind, to do good deeds, to not take vengeance, to submit to those in positions of leadership like your boss, to have patience, to not return evil for evil, but to return blessing for evil. And these are all examples of what Peter has told us to do as we've unpacked over the past few weeks. And so, though we do it differently with the motivation for Christ... If a non-Christian were to do these things, he's patient, he's kind, he does what his boss tells you, you say, hey, that's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's doing what is good. So they're not shocked at kindness or patience or helping the homeless or whatever it may be. They're shocked that we actually want to do it. That given the option between extolling ourselves and extolling others, we actually want to do it. If there were zero repercussions... The police would not be involved. The law doesn't care if you exact vengeance. We still wouldn't exact vengeance, but actually give them a blessing. That's what is strange to them. But it's clear for us, because the ultimate pattern we are to follow is not veiled like some mystery that needs to be decoded. It is clearly laid out in God's Word. God's Word is the perfect pattern. Jesus Christ is the perfect example. So there's no mystery here of what is good and what is not but I want to point out, too, that Peter's now promising that by following this pattern, pattern, by doing what is good, by obeying the Bible, that we will never face abuse or physical injury or suffer in any way, especially for doing those good things. In fact, the whole section that we've unpacked leading up to what we've just read makes it clear that he is addressing Christians who currently are suffering for the sake of righteousness. They are undergoing physical and emotional harm. Because what Peter again is stating is a simple axiom. People tend not to want to harm moral individuals. It is the rude, it is the wicked, it is the hateful. Those are the people who find themselves being harmed 
and the target of society. This is even more true in our world, in which, as I just explained, Christian morality, not, I'm not talking about the heart desires, but just on the externals, Christian morality doesn't look too different from non-Christian morality. And in any given normal setting, like at work or on the bus, from an external perspective, we don't really stand out. If someone didn't really know you, if they didn't know why you did what you did, if they didn't know you go to church, didn't know you're a Christian, they just see you on the bus from the other side of the bus every day and he pays his fare, he doesn't try to hop the bus without paying, he sits there, he stands up for the, the people who need the handicap seats. Don't really stand out, you don't look any different than anyone else. But when they look closer... There is a visible difference between us and them, which Peter mentions here in verse 13. We are eager to do it. We are zealous for good. We are passionate. Unlike society, it's not just out of peer pressure that we do good. It's not out of fear of the police or fear of imprisonment that we do good. It's not for any social reason. It is for God. That's the difference. And that is what's going to fuel the zeal that we're going to talk about. Even the fear of the police, even the the desire for reputation can only go so far when you're doing good. Because ultimately when you really pursue good, you sacrifice a lot of what the world says you should desire. And it's that, that passion, that passion for God that's going to make us zealous for good. And then we're reminded that when we talk about good, it's not just a Boy Scout mentality of just good deeds so you get some sort of honor badge. It's a life. It is a life characterized by selflessness, by humility, by kindness, generosity, and thoughtfulness. And this is key because as the world gets more and more immoral, we can become more and more immoral with it. We're just a little more good than society. That's dangerous. Our measure of what is good cannot be defined by the world. It must be defined by Scripture. I mean, you see this, don't you? Even in our lifetimes, you have seen, for example, a movie that is rated R, or let's say a movie that's rated PG, 20 years ago would have been rated R. Stuff that the censors would say you need to either edit or take the show off the air because of these scenes are now on every show. doesn't even matter if it's, a, if it's a crime drama or a comedy or whatever. They just, they just throw those things in. And those were not allowed by Hollywood just 20, 30 years ago. And so the standard of the world lowers, as Scripture has promised, as the Bible tells us it will. But we can't just say, I just want to be a little more moral than the world and I'll do good because as the world goes down, so do you. We need to stay at the top because our standard is Scripture. Not society, not Hollywood, not celebrities, not whoever. We need to practice the height of morality. Because our morality is dictated not by social norms, but by our faith and our Lord. And when we have truly proven zealous for such things... Even if we are physically harmed for those things, as Peter's initial readers, some of them were, we cannot be harmed in the ultimate sense. That is, nobody can touch the integrity of our hearts 
and especially the destiny of our souls. Because when we are zealous for good, which for the Christian really just means zealous for God, then God is zealous for us. Romans 8, verse 31, If God is for us, who is against us? Again, it's a, it's a rhetorical question that sets up a principle. You may have enemies. There may be individuals that are against us. We know that there are people that are against us as, a, as an organized church. But he's just saying, look, what does it matter if God is for you? People who are against you, doesn't matter. Romans 8.31, again, if God is for us, who is against us? That verse, if you're familiar with chapter 8 of Romans, is pillowed in the beginning with the explanation of our election, our calling, our justification, and then our glorification. And then after verse 31, it talks about the sacrifice of our Lord. That's a pretty powerful set of bookends, if you ask me. And it shows us that that verse, verse 31 of Romans 8, really gives us confidence that God is for us because He elected, called, justified, and will one day glorify and has died for us. But, with all of that, there is still a possibility, a likelihood, that you will suffer for the sake of righteousness. Let's see what Peter says about that. And our second truth to embrace to suffer well, the prophet of persecution. The prophet of persecution. Look at the beginning of verse 14 again. He says, but, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Again, verse 13 stated a general rule, and as we know, all general rules have exceptions. Here's the exception. But even in this seemingly unfortunate turn of events, suffering, the end, Peter says, is blessing. This is reminded, reminds us of what Jesus himself said in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5.10, one of the Beatitudes says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Same words right there. Peter's just repeating something that his Lord taught him. Why though? He goes on and says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about more, more about this in a minute. Before we get to the blessing, we need to understand the impetus for the suffering that both Peter and Jesus are talking about here. It is righteousness. It is suffering for righteousness sake is what he's talking about. All the promises we're going to look at this morning are because or if you have suffered or will suffer for righteousness sake, you will not be blessed for suffering because you're a jerk. You will not be blessed because you're, su- you're suffering because you're lazy, you're rude to the boss, you're swerving because you're texting while you're driving or whatever. Right? Yeah, I was, I was checking my Facebook while I was driving and I got in an accident and I'm going to see blessing through this. That's not what we're talking about. That, that's, that's not suffering for righteousness sake. That's suffering for being addicted to your phone to the degree that you don't care about other people's lives on the 101. Okay? We're talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this definitely speaks to the individuals that Peter has already addressed. 
He's talked, he's written to the beaten slave, the abused wife, the persecuted Christian. And this blessing that he mentions here gives them a motivation to keep going on, to press on. Don't give up. Don't keep quiet. Don't stop doing good. Don't stop pursuing righteousness. Keep doing what you're doing. And yes, the suffering may continue, but you will be blessed. So what kind of blessing will we receive? What kind of blessing will these people receive that he's writing to because they're suffering for the sake of righteousness? Well, first it's important to understand what blessed means. And it's the same Greek word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are you, blessed are the, blessed are you. And it simply means happy. Happy. Happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It has the same idea, the same sense as the word rejoice. And perhaps even now you are even more curious, what in the world could this happiness, this blessing be when I'm punched in the face, when the slave he's addressed is being beaten because of righteousness? What does this blessing entail? A lot. Turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. You're going to do a little bit of flipping here. I'm going to have you turn to a few passages. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is a good place to start. It's one that if you have not memorized, you've probably referred to in the midst of your trials to give you hope and confidence, courage. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And here's, you know, when I was talking about how the way we do things, the, the, the motivation of our hearts seems strange to the world, there's perhaps no truer example than this one. James 1, 2, Consider it all joy. Well, I'm down with that. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Say what? Verse 3, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is one of the blessings of trials. That your faith is tested so that it will become stronger at the end of that trial, at the end of that testing. We understand this principle all the time. You, you, you understand this principle in your own life. Right? We, uh, we have a brother in our church who's not here right now who just graduated from his second round of marine training. That's some testing right there. And I guarantee you that there are many times during that where he said, I want out. What have I done? Why did I think this was a good idea? He has been beaten down emotionally. He has been down physically. He has been criticized because of his shooting skills, his running skills, his swimming skills, his jumping skills. Everything that he could have taken any confidence in within his physical abilities, he's been told by his drill sergeants that he's an absolute failure. But now he's done. And I haven't spoken to him, but I can guarantee you can say, that made me a stronger Marine. Now I know. Now I'm confident. If they send me out into war, I'm confident that I can do what I'm supposed to do. I'm confident that I can survive. The athlete does the same thing. You know, we, have, we have athletes from the world standards that are the wealthiest people in our country. They can do whatever they want. They can be vocationing all day. You think they want to spend 
10 hours a day in the gym, on the field, in the blazing hot sun, training for the next season that doesn't start for three months. But they know it's going to make them a better athlete. It's going to make them, in their eyes, the perfect athlete, the perfect specimen of, of health and running and catching and hitting. That's why you do it. And even on a physical level, that we understand that. We understand the, the, the physiology of those who, who lift weights. You actually break down the muscle so that it's built up stronger than it was before. That's what he's talking about here, but on a spiritual level, on the, on the level of your commitment to Christ and your faith. And that's why you consider it all joy. And that's why the soldier or the athlete can stand up there after running 50 miles with a 80-pound backpack or whatever it is and sweating and, and, and really just wants to, to sleep, but he knows there more. He looks at his coach, he looks at his drill sergeant and says, please, sir, can I have another? Because he knows there's a joy in there. There's an understanding what the end result will be. I remember back when I was a personal trainer, I got a call from another personal trainer who was way more successful than I was, and he said, I'm looking to hire a personal trainer. I said, I don't understand. He said, well, here's the thing. I'm a personal trainer, and it's my job. I make money to make people work out, but I really have no motivation to work out myself. But I know if I'm paying someone and it's costing me money, then I will be forced to work out. And this is the idea here. Sometimes when things are going well from our perspective, that's when we say, I don't really want to read the Bible. I don't want to do this. And you have a good job. And, and, and you have a good social life. And you have a roof over your head. And you have a change of clothes. And you have spending money. And so sometimes we need to have that extra push to get us to the next level of spirituality, if you will. Well, it's... it's it's like hiring that trainer, but God does it for us. And, and that's why we consider it all joy. It's not that we are, Christians are, are weirdos that enjoy pain. We're, we're normal people. I don't like pain. I don't like needles. I don't like being sick. I don't like family members being sick. I don't like having to go to the hospital. These are not things we enjoy. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the big picture. This is a blessing because it, you know like that trainer or that workout, or that you got enlisted, or that that team has invited you to their training camp, you know that's going to make you better. That's one of the blessings. Turn towards the front of your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. And in this passage, he talks about physical suffering, but he also talks about the, the, the biological fact that in our human bodies, they are decaying. At any given point in time, you are dying. <laughs> you are, every second that passes, whether you're 10 years old or 100 years old, you are moving closer to the decay of your body. Second Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, that's a physical body, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we, while we look not at the things which are seen, in, in other words, the things on earth, 
but at the things which are not seen, the things of heaven, the things of glory. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And what he's talking about here is there's a future, there's an eschatological blessing. There is a reward when we die for suffering, for living, for pursuing Christ, yes, but a greater appreciation for the coming reward. I mean, think about it. Don't you appreciate vacation more if you have a really hard job? If If the week leading up to your vacation was just especially hard for whatever reason, extra projects, the, the boss was out, so you're doing double duty. Maybe you're, you're an accountant and tax day and then you finally get a break. You appreciate that vacation all the more. And this is true with anything, right? We, we probably all tried this at some point in our lives. Remember that first bite of chocolate or that first sli- slice of pizza after you did that crazy diet for 30 days? Yeah, pizza all the time, but you appreciate it all the more. And what he's saying here is, how much more will you appreciate eternity and glory when you look day by day in the mirror and say, there's another gray hair. There's another wrinkle. There's a part of my body that hurts, and I didn't even know that was a part of my body. But now I do, because it reminds me every morning with that shocking pain. Right? I was just telling my wife, I was leaning on my shoulder for like 15 minutes while we were watching TV and I couldn't move after that. You ever done that? It gets like, oh, that hurts. I can't even lean on my shoulder anymore without being stuck in bed for the next two days. I mean, it's crazy. But like that hard work before the vacation, like that diet before the slice of pizza, looking at the difficulties and the trials and the physical pain, How much more does it make us long even during this time on earth for a body where there is no illness, a glorified body where there is no sin, there is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no cancer, there is no flu, there is no bad bacteria, there is none of that. We live forever. It's not, you know, it's not this weird thing that, that people try to depict in the movies where it's like, oh, now you're going to live forever and you break your leg. Oh, that's a bummer. You're going to have a broken leg forever. No. There will be no broken legs. There will be no illness. There will be no walkers, no canes, no, no hearing aids. How much more to appreciate glory than just to look at our own selves in the mirror? Look at the report of our annual doctor's visits. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, all the way in the beginning of your New Testaments. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. And I read one of the Beatitudes here. He's, we're going to read a few more, or one more, one or two more. But it's all about suffering, persecution. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you know what the wonder of this is? I don't know the, the, the mind of Jesus. I don't know why he said things or what was going through his mind. 
But you understand that as he's trying to lovingly, as, as, as the great shepherd, encourage the people who are listening to this sermon, who are suffering, who are going through difficult times, who he knows that unbeknownst to them at that very moment, are some of them are going to be martyred for their faith. Some of them are going to be beaten up. He's trying to say, man, I hope they remember this because this is going to be hard when you turn to me. But then he says, just like they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and just about 30 years before that, he came down from heaven where he was interacting with the prophets after giving them their eternal reward. And that's an insight that he has. It's a, that's that little understanding, right? You could just imagine that, that little smile. Like, it's going to be hard here, but yeah, man, you don't know. You have no idea what I'm going to give you one day. You have no idea what you're going to get from me one day. And this is what he's saying. Why be blessed? Because there is a reward coming. There is a reward coming. And, and, and I get it in the midst of suffering, especially for persecution. You're like, I, what reward is, is... There's no reward for this. There's no reward that's going to pay for this. Just wait. Just wait. Even in temporal things, you have said stuff like that before and have been proven wrong. Wow. i got to be honest with you. I was doubting you, but this really is the best ice cream I've ever had in my life. Or something trivial compared to glory, right? But you get that. We don't fully grasp what it's going to be like. But there is a reward that we're getting. And that's why when you are persecuted and you handle it properly, there's actual reward in heaven. And that is a blessing beyond any other blessing we can have on this planet. And so a lot of this, I understand, is it's the payoff at the end. Right? you got to wait for it. It's coming. You know it's going to be good. You know it's going to be big. But sometimes the waiting is the hard part. All the time the waiting is the hard part. But just keep in mind that it's coming. It is promised. It's the big Christmas bonus. It's the TGIF, the light at the end of the tunnel, the lollipop. After the doctor's visit, it is coming. You can be sure of it. And it is going to be amazing. And though God does not promise deliverance from earthly persecution, He does promise an eternal reward. Not only a badge of honor in being named among those who have fought the good fight and have rightly received persecution like the rest of us, but an eternal reward forever. I don't care how big your pay increase was. I don't care how big your Christmas bonus was. It will one day run out. The stock market can crash. Your 401k can disappear. Whatever it may be. And then you die and you don't take it with you and it just goes away. This reward is never failing, never faltering, never be taken away, nor the promise of it will it ever, never be taken away. And God is simply reminding us of the triviality of persecution in comparison to the reward. Don't get me wrong. Persecution and suffering is persecution and suffering. Hard? Yes. Terrifying? Absolutely. Life-threatening? Quite possibly. But trivial. Trivial in comparison to eternal reward. And the value of this reward is not fully appreciated until it is seen in the light of eternity. 
And it's because of this we can rejoice in persecution, knowing that the persecution, even if it lasts for the rest of your life till your dying breath, the end is near and the reward is forever. You know what forever, having a reward forever is like? Nothing else like it. I couldn't even begin to explain to you what that's like because I don't even comprehend it myself. Forever. We're looking at six truths to embrace to suffer well. We've seen the attitude of avoidance, do good, the profit of persecution, the multifaceted blessing, and thirdly and lastly for this morning, the comfort of confidence. The comfort of confidence. Look at the end of verse 14 where in some of your English Bibles it's in all caps because he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12. He says, And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Again, this is Isaiah 8.12. And I think it would be helpful to understand the context of this verse of Isaiah chapters 7 and 8. You had a kingdom. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's okay. But there were two kingdoms of God's people. The southern kingdom was called Judah. At that time, in Isaiah 7 and 8, the king of Judah was King Ahaz. King Ahaz knew that he was about to be invaded by Assyria. And so the kings of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Aram, which is modern-day Syria, they wanted to make an alliance with King Ahaz. King Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do it. He refuses. And in, in response, Israel and Aram, who said, who, who just had their, their, their proposed alliance rejected, said, then we're going to invite, invade you too. You don't want to ally with us? We're going to invite, invade you. We're going to remove you from the throne. And we're going to install this guy, Tabeel, as king of Judah. That's what you get. You don't want to be with us? This is what we're going to do in retaliation. Obviously, King Ahaz is terrified to the point that he actually makes an alliance with Assyria. Don't invade me. Help me. Now, in all of this, he's not supposed to be doing, doing that. That's a big no-no, to make an alliance with Assyria. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah. And he tells King Ahaz, Do not fear Israel. Do not fear Aram to the point that you're making this alliance. In God's sovereignty, they will be vanquished by Syria. He says, instead, don't rely on any of these nations, any of these kings. Instead, Ahaz and Judah, you are to fear the Lord. You are to trust in Him. And Peter has taken this scenario and telling believers, modern day Christians, that the threat of violence from others should not be feared. Rather, trust in the Lord. It's the same principle, but to a much smaller degree because I don't think you're a king and you're trying to figure out who to make an alliance with for fear that they're going to come and destroy your people and kill you, especially here in America. But it's the same scenario. It's the same principle. Fear God. Trust in Him. He says, do not fear them, which means to not be intimidated as translated by the NAS. So we're not to be intimidated by the persecutors or the would-be persecutors, specifically by those who are doing so because of our faith and our righteousness. Further, he says, do not be troubled. Literally shaken. Don't be stirred up. You guys get that when you're really scared. You're just, you're just on edge. You're shaky. 
it's 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 this this anxiety. This guy said he's going to do this, or or or, or I heard that this kind of stuff was happening in my neighborhood, and you can't sleep. You're anxious. You're worrying. He says, "Don't worry. Don't be anxious about those who persecute you for righteousness." So let's take this all together, okay? He says, if you are persecuted and suffer for the sake of righteousness, know that you are blessed. And do not fear the persecutor's intimidation or let them cause you inner turmoil and anxiety. Rather, face the persecution with courage. Not because you are bigger or stronger than them, but because your God is. Your courage comes from Him. Your courage and faith and confidence is in Him. When you have this perspective, why would you fear anything when ultimate joy is promised? Not protection, you understand. He is still saying, you're gonna, you're gonna very well face persecution. Some of you may just have your feelings hurt. Some of you may lose your jobs. Some of you may be killed. Probably not any of us here. But you know very well that there are Christians for their faith being killed even as I speak all over the world. So there is no protection in an earthly sense, but there is ultimate protection in an eternal sense. And there is ultimate and eternal joy. Especially when you will be even happier as a result of the very thing that you are tempted to fear. Persecution, other people. Now here, we're told that we're not to fear the persecutors, but the fear of any man is forbidden. Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And again, he's making a very clear contrast between the power of a human being, who the worst he can, this is Jesus saying, is the worst they can do is kill you. They can destroy your body. They can end your life. You say, well, that, isn't that the ultimate? No, the ultimate is God's power who can destroy the soul as well in hell. He's not, it's not a threat to Christians. You can't lose your salvation. You're not going to hell if you're a Christian. He's just making a comparison between fearing man and fearing God. And we're confident of these things. So we find comfort and courage. And, and this is, we're not talking about like, Again, you're not Superman. Right? We don't like pain, so we fear pain. Right? You've, you've probably heard people say before, like, I don't fear death. I fear dying. I don't fear death. And what they're saying is, they're not scared of death. They know where they're going. But they fear, like, dying a slow, painful death. They don't, they don't want that. And, and that's logical. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not saying, you know, enjoy pain. That's not what it's saying when it says joy in persecution. Um, don't enjoy pain. There's, some, there's probably something wrong with you if you, 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 you enjoy pain, right? Um, and so, no offense if that's you, but, you know, we can talk afterwards and give you some counseling. But the idea is, yeah, we fear pain, right? You're not a bad Christian because you wince right before the nurse sticks the needle in. No, that's normal. That's true. That means your body is working. Your nerves are working. The synapses in your brain are working. All of you in the science field are shaking your heads at me. I don't know how it works, okay? But you know, that's something to do with nerves, right? It hurts. It's okay. But we're talking about what he's saying is don't fear the persecutors. Now, now this isn't like you, you go around 
seeking. You don't, you don't Google, let me find the most violent atheist and go hang out. No, you don't go seek it. Like, here I am. I believe in Jesus. I condemn you. Come beat me up. This is not what it's talking about. But we don't live our lives to the degree that I say, hey, aren't you a Christian? Shh, no, 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 no. That guy doesn't like Christians. We don't fear them to the point that it dictates our lives like that. And there's a direct correlation between your level of faith and belief in God's promises versus your fear of man. There's a direct correlation. It's an inverse correlation. Because as A, confidence in God increases, B, fear of man decreases. But that inverse correlation is still a correlation when the opposite is true. And this is why the fear of man can have a horrible snowball effect. The more you fear, the more you breed unrest and agitation, which is why Peter is saying don't do it, which leads to temptations of greater unbelief. Not that you stop believing in God, but on a practical level you stop believing in His promises, His power, and perhaps to the greatest degree, unbelief in His active presence and involvement that this suffering is actually a good thing for you. And we do this with all kinds of things. And we're already nervous about that job interview. Because it's a job interview. Then we start thinking about all the what-ifs. The horror stories. Oh, yeah. I remember that one classmate I had interviewed for this company and they were just brutal. They tore her apart. And then you start thinking, oh man, i got to sit here and wait. I, I want to check my makeup again, check my hair in the bathroom. But if I leave, they might call me in while I'm gone. You say, what if I didn't prepare enough? And then maybe you start thinking about your finances and all the other interviews. Like, this may be my last chance. If I don't get this job and start right away, I can't pay the bills. What if I bomb this? And there's no more interviews. And they put that on the website. I'm on monster.com, whatever, and no one wants to interview me anymore. And then someone comes in and reminds you. They say, look, you've got this. Remember how well you did in those past interviews? They actually said you were overqualified. They actually said you were more qualified for this job that you're interviewing for. They actually got you, the interviewer you never met, got you this connection with this company and this interviewer. Right? You're going to do fine. And it's not just lip service. They back up that claim that you're going to do fine. It's the same thing with the fear of man. Except it's not about how well you've done in the past, but how well God has helped you in the past. And even if He hasn't helped you in a similar situation, you know that He will help you in the future. So they say, you'll do fine in this persecution. You'll do fine in this suffering, someone says. And you know it's not just lip service, but they back it up. How do they back it up? With the Word of God. You'll do fine. It may hurt. It may have a lasting impression. It may affect your sleep. But in the end, you're going to do fine as long as you trust the Lord. And here's the thing. For a lot of Christians, what I'm saying here this morning is totally foreign to you because you've already caved. We're talking again about suffering for the sake of righteousness which will not exist 
if we go all the way back to the beginning of the sermon where you just look like everyone else because you keep quiet about your faith. And you're happy about that, but there's no joy there because you know you're in disobedience. You understand that I scanned the room for ages at this point. Peter is talking about people who are being beaten and raped. I'm not using that as a metaphor. They're being raped because of what they're doing. So surely all these promises hold true for you because you're just scared to tell people that Jesus lives. We've looked at three of our six truths to embrace to suffer well. The attitude of avoidance, the profit of persecution, and the comfort of confidence. And though we are only halfway through the passage, we can already see how we can suffer in a way that not only pleases God, but gives us the right perspective in the midst of pain. And whether it's the attitude of pursuing godliness with zeal, as we saw, or focusing on the blessings that are ours or will be ours, or finding comfort in the courage that comes from confidently trusting in God's power, God's character, God's promises over fearing man. All of this comes down to the foundation we have in God's Word. Remember we started there. This is the pattern. The promises we are to have confidence in are found in God's Word, are found in Jesus Christ. The pattern of goodness, the promises of blessings, the character of God in whom we trust. And there's actually a hymn that I find very fitting that speaks of this well, that says how firm a foundation, that speaks of the foundation we have in Christ and His Word, and how that foundation will help us even if hell itself comes and tries to tackle us. Would you bow your heads and just listen as I read these words? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design the dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's the promise of the the trials helping that which is true and good in us to be refined and built up, and the dross, the extras, to be burned away. The final stanza says this, The soul that in Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a challenge it is, as you know from your own experience in life, to suffer for the Father. And yet you came before us and you give us these promises, you give us this joy, you give us a clear explanation and pattern of goodness and your character. 
Father, it's tough. We're, we're scared. We fear man. We are hesitant to share the gospel. We are hesitant to live boldly for Christ. But I pray that we will be reminded by even this hymn and these words from Scripture that we have a foundation in the blood of Jesus Christ and of Your Word. May we not fear. If there are true believers here that do have a fear that's keeping us from living the way that we would live on a Sunday morning at church or in behind closed doors with our Christian family but not out in public, I pray, Father, that You would help us to see that fear. Help us to see the, the, the trivialities of it and the details of that and repent of that. May we live boldly for Christ, not because we have to, but because we want to, because it brings us joy, because it's the purpose of our salvation, it's the purpose of our creation, it's the purpose of our very being. May we live this way for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.